time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, December 23rd, 2008. Got a good program lined up today, but then again, we work hard to do that. Ironically, we're going to be talking a little bit about Rick Warren. I know that's going to shock some of you, but it seems like for the past few weeks, it's been all Warren all the time. He's really... uh, been all over the media, and uh, we got some stuff that we didn't have a chance to respond to yet that we've got to respond to, and we'll get to that. We'll be talking about Rick Warren's address to the Muslim Public Affairs Council on Saturday. Got a uh, and, uh, a public radio uh, news story to play for you, for you to listen to, and we'll react to. Also, um, Rick Warren... <laughs> Uh, apparently Rachel Maddow on uh, MSNBC, she's a lesbian, and uh, and she's got something to talk about regarding Rick Warren and uh, the issue of homosexuality. And the question is, is Rick is uh, is Warren's church is Saddleback okay with gays? That's uh, that's her take on something that uh, somebody pointed out to her regarding this, uh, some changes at the uh, Saddleback Church website. Now, of course. We'll we'll talk about it. I think that her charges are a little bit overblown, but the right way to look at it is one regarding uh, Rick Warren seems to be a con- you know uh, trying to appease everybody, and as a result of it, I think he's making compromises on things that uh, biblically we Christians shouldn't be compromising about. We got listener email today. Uh, we've got a very bizarre. <clears throat> I don't know if this is a rhythm and blues or just a blues song from Brian McLaren uh, from the Emergent Church. Um, got to hear this. It's <laughs> it's a little over the top bizarre. So we got a great program lined up today. All right, uh you know, I think without any, you know, further ado, we'll get into uh listener email today. And uh it always amazes me how people, you know, I think people now have gotten to the point where they just want to win an award for the most creative spelling or mangling of my my name. <laughs> Although, uh, Nicholas, uh, uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, this is the gentleman from the UK who has four names. Okay. Most of us get by in life with two. You know, although I have a middle name, but it's only for use by my mother when I've done something wrong. <laughs> He's got four. So uh, he, he writes to me, and he, he's responding to uh, the... Uh, financial u-turn sermon that we did last week if you can call it a sermon and you know and he he writes he says i've just listened to your december 19th program and uh yeah he points out the uk spelling they they even have a different way of pro- spelling the word program in the in the uk did you know that i did not know that p-r-o-g-r-a-m-m-e i i say i'd be tempted to say programmy but uh <laughs> but then again i would show my uh, american roots like i don't do that already Anyways, he says, uh, and I have a few thoughts to offer about this sermon that you reviewed. Firstly, I don't think it's a sermon. It's a financial management seminar with tithing thrown in. Yeah, he's right. As a peculiar Baptist minister. Now, uh, or no, I'm sorry, peculiar, not, particular. He's a particular Baptist. I, 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 apparently, a particular Baptist is a, is a type of Baptist in the UK. Um, so he's a particular Baptist minister. I know a bit about preaching and have spent two years at seminary and, and, and now going to what you Lutherans would call a vicarage. That's right. You go kind of on-the-job training, you know, where you live in poverty and, 
and <laughs> you, you learn the ropes of actually being a pastor. He says, among the particular Baptists, the Lutheran view of law and gospel is well known. Having been taught early by John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, you probably didn't know that he was a Lutheran Baptist. I, I did not know that, and that's actually interesting to know. I, I've read the book myself and, and find it that law and gospel is done there pretty well. He says, but the book that most influenced Bunyan was, in fact, Luther's commentary on Galatians. This is probably why many of our writers have been accused of being antinomian, just like your CFW Walther. Thus, a particular Baptist of the old school knows that in a sermon, Christ must be at the center. An old Calvinistic congregation minister in my hometown of Norwich, Norfolk, received good advice from his father. He said, preach Christ and do not say that he is not in the text. He is in the Bible and that's enough. <laughs> I agree. You know, we've gotten to the point where here you know, the, the sermons that I'm reviewing, you know, and, and the, the reality is, is that these are not hard to find anymore. In fact, what's difficult to find is a good Christ-centered sermon. Or a, or a homily that centers on Christ, regardless of the passage that, that's being taught. And, um, you know, what, what I tell people when it comes to preaching, when it comes to teaching Christ, is that uh, the Bible itself has a center story, even though there's different chapters, so to speak, you know, that, that, that follow in the flow of that story. And just like when you read the book, you know, the books uh, written by J.R.R. Tolkien on The Lord of the Rings, you know, you got The Fellowship, The Ring, The Two Towers, and, and The Return of the King, you know, all very well-written novels. There's a central theme that runs through all of them, and, and that has to do with you know, the destruction of the ring and the establishment of this new kingdom, you know, so the, uh, the destruction of darkness and evil and, you know, and the rise of, of a new hope, so to speak. And so, you know, and that, that theme runs through all of the books, regardless of which chapter you're in, because every, everything's moving forward to that pinnacle event. Same with scripture. Scripture has a central theme and that's the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. You know, he died to, cover, to take on the sins of the world upon himself. And so that's the pivotal story. And so even the Old Testament, the stories we get in there, historical stories, they, they are that, are, are pointing us to and moving forward the bigger story, and that's following the line of the Messiah, and the Messiah being Jesus Christ. So, you know, there's a particular reason why there's a particular family that's chosen, and in that particular family, their, their children are followed through, you know, through the line of David then eventually and on into, you know, to Jesus Christ. What are we doing there? It's the story of the, uh, the heritage of, of Jesus Christ himself, who is none other than the Son of Man and Son of God, you know, God in human flesh. So... Anyways, he's, secondly, he points out, uh, uh, Gervais points out, he says, what is it with all these anecdotes and funny stories? Th th my question, too, you know, why are we, <laughs> what is, how is it that a pastor uh, exegetes funny stories rather than the Bible? I f find that to be a supreme waste of time and rather annoying. Or his he's, own life. Or, or his own life, right? Because everybody knows that the pastor's life is the life that we're supposed to model, right? <clears throat> I thought he was a sinner just like me. Anyway, he says, I was in the pulpit at my home church on Sunday, and in the first 10 minutes of the sermon on Jacob's Ladder, I went through the background of the text, pointed out our Lord's use of it to describe himself in uh, John 1.51, and explained how we don't climb the ladder. Number of amusing stories, none. <laughs> Gervais, you, you're not telling amusing stories. How can you, how can you even be relevant? <laughs> I, I, I joke, but see, that's the thing. You know, everyone wants to be relevant rather than faithful to the text. Pastors are not called into the, uh, the job of entertainment. 
the job past, the job of a pastor is to is the ministry of God's word you know to faithfully stick to the preaching and the teaching of Christ and the apostles and and you know really bring us bring forward God's word and bring us Christ in all the passages of scripture but uh nowadays you know not so much in fact it's quite the opposite it's very difficult to find a pastor to do that so i'm jervis i'm i'm actually thrilled uh, that uh, the people that God has given you to uh, teach to get to hear Christ in all of these passages and that you understand law and gospel. And, and you, you even use Jacob's ladder to say that we don't climb it. <laughs> Christ is the one who's climbed it for us if there's any climbing going on. He says, the only thing uh, that might have uh, raised a smile was my using of a description of a pile of dung as an illustration of our good works. Yeah, th- that's pretty much exactly... <laughs> What the scripture teaches, yeah, all of our good works are a big, hot, steaming one on the lawn, uh, laid left there by uh, a large animal. <laughs> our good works count for nothing, but in Christ, through faith, actually, He considers them to be good works, but uh, on their own, really, they're not at all. So, Jervis, right, great email. Um, okay, let's see here. Let, uh, Nathan. Uh, Nathan writes, he says, uh, I'm listening to your review of the financial U-turn sermon now, and my goodness, how on earth does anyone mistake this for a sermon? People here in America don't know what a sermon is anymore. You know why? Because we've gotten seeker sensitive. You go out and ask the unbeliever, you ask the unchurch what it is that they want to believe, and then you give them what they want, what they want to hear, and then you give them what they want at church. That's how it works. It's 100% backwards he says um where in the bible are pastors ever called to give good financial advice nowhere (laughs) here's the deal they're they're funny enough is that within scripture there are some you know there's some really good advice given in the proverbs as it as it comes to a work ethic as it comes to you know as to managing yourself and things like that but understand, you know, you don't you don't preach those things apart from Christ. You preach them. You you you. We Christians perform good works by faith in Jesus Christ. The faith being the active, really the thing. We are abiding in Christ, and Christ is producing good fruit in us as we abide in Him. And th- that includes how we manage our finances, how we manage our home, how we manage our family, how we manage ourselves with our wife, with our children, with you know, with our parents, our employers, our employees. You know, so there's the, the scriptures have plenty to say. On on these things but the problem is is that these guys like i said they strip mine the scriptures and what they're what they're washing away as and considering to be useless or unimportant is the very gospel itself and so what happens is is that it's 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 all this good advice completely divorced from christ himself divorced from the gospel just the bible stripped mine to you know it might as well be a fortune cookie or you know <laughs> it's ay 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 he said, okay, he continues, I honestly have to wonder what these people think the church actually is. Well, it's a place where I go to feel better. Um, I'm reminded of a satirical article I read once about a business that laid off a number of its employees and as a result noticed a small increase in profit. So then they decided to lay off all of its employees expecting to make a huge increase in profit. <laughs> 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 it seems that churches like this have have seen that watering down the gospel message is a little bit a, a, a little bit gets bigger crowds in each week so surely removing the gospel completely will bring them in in droves. That is a great metaphor. You know, in fact, uh, Nathan, I'm going to steal that. Um, and I'm going to use that sometime in the future, and I'm never going to give you credit for it. So I'm giving you credit now while while I, while you have it. But 
<laughs> no, that's, that's a great point. So, oh man, I'm looking at our time here. This next one, uh, yeah, I want to do this. <clears throat> no, I'll tell you what, I'll do it tomorrow. Okay. I'll talk about the prophecies tomorrow. I got an email from James, and uh, James uh, you know, wasn't all that thrilled with the, you know, just, just wasn't impressed with the uh, the fulfilled prophecy stuff that we went over last week, which, by the way, I think is fantastic. And there's there's more that I'll I'll have to bring to bear, but I'll do that on tomorrow's program or the next program we do. So uh, let's. This is bizarre stuff. All right, I'm gonna this. I gotta share this. Okay, this one's weird. Brian McLaren, okay, of the Emergent Church, he, he like does these these really campy YouTube videos. You know, it looks like he's got a really cheap camcorder, and I I've come to be familiar with the inside of his office and wherever he's living somewhere in I think Maryland or in that area and uh, he likes to play guitar and uh, (laughs) he's written a a song that he's posted for Christmas regarding Jesus but I the reason I play this is not because it's so campy and bad but because the lyrics I think give us a good look into the Jesus that Brian McLaren is following you know, it's a slightly different Jesus than the biblical Jesus, but uh, I, I, I want to play this for you. So I apologize. McLaren isn't uh, isn't the most gifted of folk uh, of folk artists out there, but I, pay, let's play play pay close attention to the lyrics here, to uh, it, to what he's singing, and, and we'll kind of pick this apart. But it's worth it's worth a listen. Here we go. We Let me pause. We follow the poor man from the poor part of town. This this Jesus already that he, <laughs> or this is the poor abused social injustice Jesus. The, the, the down and out. The down and out Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> you know, the Jesus with his pockets hanging out with a pen, without a penny in his hand. Does he have one of those sticks with the knapsack on I, the I back? I think so. Yeah, like the guy from Monopoly. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, we continue. With lepers and beggars wandering around. With lepers and beggars wandering around. Generous with a little that he had. Befriending the sinners and cheering the sad. Okay, we follow the king who carries no sword, and the next line is, we call him Lord. Lord. All right, (laughs) verse one, I apologize, he's not much of a musician. Does this this sound like the Jesus you're familiar with in the scriptures? No, not really. (laughs) Close, but no cigar. Sorry, I just think this it's, is the grapes of wrath, Jesus. Exactly, exactly. This is a John Steinbeck Jesus. <laughs> okay, let's <laughs> Okay, you can't get it. We follow the victim unfairly accused. He's a victim. Jesus is a victim. What is he a victim of? Unjustly arrested. 
unjustly arrested and beaten. And be- See, he's he's uh, just a victim of a corrupt, you know, system. Couldn't get justice from the powers that be. Tortured and killed and hanged on a tree. See, that's what Jesus' crucifixion really was. It was just a supreme injustice. (sighs) Even though the funny thing is, is that Jesus himself basically says that his life wasn't taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. Right? You know... And uh, let me find that Pontius Pilate passage because a wonderful passage of scripture kind of shows who's really in control at the time of the crucifixion. Was it Jesus or was it Pontius Pilate? You know, what is truth? Hang on a second here. We're looking for the what is truth section of scripture. Aha, John 18. Let me do this. John 18. Here we go. Okay. All right. All right. The high priest then questioned Jesus. This is John chapter 18, starting at verse 19, about the... Uh, oh, wait a second. I'm not, I'm not even in the right place. Rosebro, you know what? I think I'm getting old. <laughs> Every day. Man. Wow. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Uh, John 18, verse 33. Sorry. I apologize. False start there. Here, Rosebro's getting old. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Well, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So in that little exchange there, um, Jesus, he's kingdom from another world, right? Um, you know, he's really in charge here. And, uh, the funny thing is, is that, you know, Pilate at this point, he, even though he's, Jesus is innocent, this whole trial is a farce. Uh, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Um, that's kind of the whole point of the crucifixion. The just one dies for the sins of the unjust. It's it's the injustice of the whole situation, and Jesus turns it on his head. Why? By becoming the perfect how he by becoming the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus wasn't being defeated here; he was actually winning. You know what I'm saying? We'll throw a little Christus Victor, and just for the emergent guys, that'll that'll. So, you know, here we got Brian McLaren singing about the uh, poor, abused victim, Jesus. And yet, whose plan was it for Jesus to die? His own. (laughs) You know, if we're going to blame anybody, let's let's blame God the Father, right? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, you know, before the crucifixion. He's sweating drops of blood because he knows he's going to the cross. 
And uh, what does he say? You know, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but uh, not my will be done, but yours. So God the Father says, nope, you're going to the cross. Who is in control here? (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, the Jesus that McLaren is singing about here reminds me of Gandhi. I can almost see Jesus running around in one of those little Gandhi diaper things, you know, with a little shaved head and some glasses. You know, I think... We follow the king who has no sword. By the way, I got to do a little bit more work here. Um, There's a fun little passage in Revelation of all places. Um, We'll have to take a look at that real quick here. Let me see. I think I prepared that, pulled it out. Uh, Let's see here. Okay. Getting old. Sword. We're looking in the book of Revelation. It's like at the tail end of Revelation. There it is. Okay. Um, listen to this description of Jesus. This is not a very, this is, if if you're an emergent, you might want to close your ears, take your fingers, both of them, stick them into your ears and just go, la, 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 la. You don't want to hear this next part. You really don't. Cause this will really mess up what you think about Jesus. Um, revelation chapter 19, uh, we read about Jesus, um, and it's coming back. John, the apostle writes, Then I saw heaven opened, this is verse 11, John, Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Can you believe that? It says here that the the one on the white horse, which happens to be Jesus, um, that he, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name of by which he is called is the Word of God, the Lagos, <laughs> to Thehu. Um, so the, here we got the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, do you think that Jesus described here, that you know Jesus is being described here, is not being described as some unarmed, swordless guy? Um, he's being described <laughs> as a conquering king on a white steed with the sword of his mouth. Um, let's see. Yeah, see, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, and which will, with which to strike down the nations. I mean, this Jesus here in Revelation doesn't sound anything like the Jesus that McLaren is singing about. It sounds like a warrior to me. Yeah, it sounds like a warrior. Yeah, well, well, I'm sorry, but the the Jesus that McLaren's singing about sounds like a complete pansy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We follow the peace man completely unarmed. Except for the sword that comes from his mouth, which he wakes war of the nations, right? Won't harm back with harm. He's coming to judge the nations. No horses and chariots, neither bomber nor gun. He rides on a donkey and loves everyone. He rides in on a donkey and just loves everyone. I'm sorry, but Jesus, the whole picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey, 
um, when he comes back, he ain't coming in on a donkey. It, not at all. Okay, he's not coming in humility. You know, the, the humble part of Jesus' work is done. Okay, when he comes back, he's going to make war on the nations. He's going to judge all mankind. And as the creed says, he's coming again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. It's going to be, let, let's say, the final battle, so to speak. The, the, the war to end all wars, if you would. And Jesus is going to come out victorious, and he's coming to wage war. But uh, McLaren's Jesus is stuck in donkey mode. Um, and we continue. We follow a king who carries no sword. Except for the sword in his mouth. He... You know, he plays better guitar better than I do, but... outcast a minority jesus is an out did you know that jesus is a minority did not know that you know the the jesus he's talking about may as well be a black lesbian woman (laughs) a victim of a victim of prejudice and hostility prejudice prejudice that's a new one yeah um really prejudice because he was a jew Victim, a victim of prejudice. Victim, not not just that he's a victim of prejudice and hostility. This is the wimpiest Jesus I've ever heard of in my entire life. Hippie Jesus. This is this is like anorexic hippie Jesus. You know, who's got no. You know, this is the kind of Jesus you'd want to kick sand on. You know, when you're at the beach, you know, just you know, take you know, just for the fun of it, take him out and lick him. You know, <laughs> just beat. Beat him to a pulp just because. I mean, this is like this is like the nerdy Spencer Jesus. I, uh. The righteous despised him for breaking their precious rules. The righteous despised him for breaking their precious rules. No concept of law and gospel with this guy. Except for the one in his mouth, right? I call your Jesus a complete wimp. Victim of circumstance. Victim of injustice. He's a victim. What is this? This is Marxist. (laughs) These are Marxist themes that he's singing about, by the way. Um, mm Mm-hmm. 
we follow the servant who refuses to fight. Uh, folks, Jesus is coming back to wake, make, make war on the nations. And he's going to fight his enemies with a sword in his mouth. And he's going to judge people. Does Jesus have a problem fighting? I don't think so. You know, there's just this is. <clears throat> let me do a little word search here. We're going to uh, we're going to pull up the story of the story of Jericho, okay? And uh, in fact, what we're going to do real quick, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Jericho, okay? We're going to do we're going to get a little Old Testament on you, and uh, I'm going to change some words in the text. And even though I'm going to change some words. I will not in any way alter its real meaning. So uh, stay tuned. We're, we're going <clears> to... <throat> Is this going to be a WWJD moment? No. Well, it could be. It just, But this isn't... I don't recommend this. Don't try this one at home. So, <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. So um, stay tuned. We'll be right back. When we come back, we're going to talk about this. We're, we're going to switch gears and talk about this Jesus compared to something from the story of Jericho. Um if you would like to email me and uh, let me know about whether or not you would like to kick sand in the face of this particular Jesus, because this is not the Jesus of Scripture, uh, email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Flock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact, LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And Fighting for the Faith exists to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Basically ask questions, uh, are, is, is what you're hearing the Word of God or not, right? Is what you're hearing today's from today's major Christian leaders... Brian McLaren, Rick Warren, name Joel Osteen, name the group, name the person. 
and even your local pastor is 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 what they t- is what they are teaching the word of god is it really comport with god's word and what god's word teaches or is it um <clears throat> something else um so uh we're going to uh we're going to uh take a look at some stuff here in the book of Joshua cuz right now we are looking at uh, Brian McLaren um hang on a second here i got to do a little search here the lord and Jericho. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. All right, are you ready for this? <laughs> All right, this is gonna be this is gonna be fun. Um, hang on, folks. Um, we're gonna be talking about war here. Okay, there's gonna be some death and destruction that we're gonna talk about here from the book of Joshua. Okay, and um, so we're going to uh, read what the Lord has to say. Um about Jericho. And so if, if you uh, don't like stories about God commanding people to kill other people, you don't, you don't want to, you, you just change the channel, turn off the iPod. You know, if, if, if you're not into a manly God who, uh, <laughs> who can exact judgment on people, well, then you, you, this is just not going to be for you. It's a, in fact, it, you, you definitely, definitely want to consider doing something different. Listen to this, Joshua chapter six. Now Jericho was shut up, and inside and outside became uh, because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, "Wait a second, I got to change a word here. I said I was going to change a word. Here's the word. Are you ready?" And Jesus said to Joshua, "See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days." Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, and on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, and when all the people, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every straight before them. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let the uh, seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of Jesus. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. The word I changed was the tetragrammaton, in the Hebrew, Yahweh, and I changed it to Jesus. In the Old Testament, we translated it as Lord. When we change it to Jesus, it says that Jesus is the one that commanded Joshua and the armies of Israel to go and destroy Jericho. What do you think of that Jesus? Tough. Yeah, that's a tough. That's a tough Jesus. And so here we've got Brian McLaren singing about some kind of a Jesus who doesn't make war or anything like that. Um, Jesus has uh, he's got all kinds of war stuff going on. Maybe it's the triune thing he doesn't. Oh, I see. That was just the father. See, the father was doing his thing. He was up in his in his study planning his takeover of the world, and the son was saying, "Oh no, no, dad, let's do it differently, right?" I'm going to go down there and have sand kicked in my face. <sighs> Folks, when you read in the scriptures where the Lord Yahweh commands the children of Israel to kill and destroy, um, um, you can literally get away with translating that as Jesus, right? So, um, yeah, how does that make you feel about Jesus now, right? That's the point. 
is that this this Jesus that McLaren's singing about, I have no idea who that nerdy little guy is. No, that's that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. I just I, this this that guy is foreign. Let's continue. But we see in his weakness a more powerful light. We see in his dying a new way to survive. We see in his dying a new way to survive. Seriously, what is the Jesus is going to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead? He's the Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament who who sent the armies of Israel into wage war against the Philistines, against the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Uptites, the Balaitites, you know, all of those people, right? Yeah, 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 you just got that. Okay, so and uh, and yeah, Jesus comes humble and meek. And he goes and dies for our sins. But even that was really an act of war against sin, death, and the devil. Because what did he do? He died for our sins. Right? His Jesus is more like a Ken doll. Yeah, exactly. More like a Ken doll. Not like like a G.I. Joe. Right. Same genitalia as a Ken doll, too, man. Jeez. (laughs) Lacking any, any, you know, the Jesus I believe in was circumcised on the eighth day. All right, figure that one out. Anyway, so there we go. That's Brian McLaren's latest piece. I just had to share that with you because, again, over and over again, this, the emergent church movement—they're they, bringing us a different Jesus. They're—they're they're, they're to the point now where they've written their own Bible, which completely mangles God's word. It doesn't even come close to faithfully rendering what the text actually says or means. And uh, they, they've inserted their own unique doctrines. And the Jesus that McLaren follows is basically uh, Gandhi with a bigger beard. You know, that's it. So, all right. We've done McLaren enough for the day. All right. Okay. Th- we're going to move on to Rick Warren. Rick Warren, you know, the only reason I'm talking about him is because everyone's talking about him right now. We need to, we need to weigh in on this. And uh, there's some things that he's been doing that uh, basically has me really uncomfortable Really, really, really uncomfortable. Here's the smaller of the ones, okay? This is from the Rachel Maddow show uh, from MSNBC. And let's they hear remember what's... us giving a little hat tip to hang, John. Hang on a second. Let me back this up so we get this right. Here we go. This is Rachel Maddow. Warren's Saddleback Church website. He found this very clear statement that maybe ought to have given the Obama folks pause before they invited Pastor Warren to give the invocation at Barack Obama's inaugural. John found this quote. Because membership in a church is an outgrowth of accepting the lordship and leadership of Jesus in one's life, someone unwilling to repent of their homosexual lifestyle would not be accepted as a member of Saddleback Church. Ouch. That means, of course, that Barack Obama asked that the spiritual clarion call at his swearing-in would be delivered by a man who will not allow gay people to join his church if they're unrepentant. He's also a man who says gay relationships are equivalent to child molestation and incest. All right, now pause there for a second. Okay. So she's commenting about the fact that one of her viewers sent her a link to Saddleback's website, Saddleback Church's website, and where they basically said that uh, 
you cannot be a member of Saddleback Church if you are an unrepentant homosexual. Okay, now she's a lesbian, and you know for her that's like a big ouch, right? It just is. It's inhuman. It's it's a civil rights injustice on the part of Rick Warren, right? So now, so what's her what's her beef here? Is is that the, Obama shouldn't have anything to do with this hick backwards thinking uh, homophobe Rick Warren? Okay, but the story doesn't end there because uh, here's the deal, folks. Um, if you are an unrepentant homosexual, um, then you should be subject to church discipline. Okay, just like if I was an unrepentant uh, adulterer, then I am subject to church discipline. I could, you know, my membership could be revoked. I, I, I can't go to church and, you know, basically take the Lord's Supper and receive the forgiveness of sins and, and, and hear God's word and live in a openly defiant uh, way of living that that basically says I don't care what God's law says I'm going to keep doing it my way, and uh, you, you, nothing you can do about it, right? So that would be unrepentance. Unrepentance at that point, you, uh, you know, somebody sins, you know, well, <clears throat> you need to confront them with them, and if they're not repentant, then we we take the church discipline route. Well, Rick Warren's policy or Saddleback Church's policy, I would say, is biblical, right? Yes. Okay. Sound like you're defending Rick Warren. I know, I know, I know. Stop, <laughs> stop pointing that out. <laughs> so but the problem is, is that Rick Warren's been running around the countryside claiming to be a uniter rather than a divider. He's not either left nor he's not left wing or right wing. He's the whole bird. He's a big turkey. Um, so, you know, Rick Warren is, is, is trying to shoot the rapids between these, you know, between conservatism and liberalism right now. And the problem is, is that the, what he's doing has, I think is compromising many things that he should, he has no business compromising because they're not his things to compromise, right? He's a called and ordained minister of God's word. His job is to preach the word and stand firm on that, on the word and proclaim what Christ and the word teaches, and uh, not to capitulate when when the pressure gets hot or when it's expedient or if if your popularity is at stake. But uh, let's let's hear the rest of the story now because uh, apparently that little verbiage regarding homosexuality has mysteriously disappeared from Saddleback Church's website. Now, since Friday, Mr. Aravosis has noted that Rick Warren pulled that anti-gay language from his church website. So, does that mean you can now be unrepentantly gay and be a member of Rick Warren's church? Or does it just mean that Rick Warren is embarrassed to have had his policy about that out on the internet machine for everyone to see? Now, I, I would say it's probably the second of those two choices. <laughs> you know, I doubt for I doubt it for a second. Yeah, I don't I actually wait a I don't doubt it for a second that Saddleback Church is not going to be in the process of making members of people who are openly homosexual. You know, I don't think Rick Warren could survive if if they if Saddleback Church started doing that. But uh, she brings up the good point is uh, or uh, this really is about popularity and expediency. The problem is is this is a compromise. Rick Warren is capitulating. He's caving under the pressure. He's trying to be a uniter instead of a divider. The problem is is that scripture has some pretty hard lines to it that uh what we stand on, right? Yes. So I would say that this is definitely a uh, a victory for capitulation. 
a victory for compromise, but not a victory for principled stand on God's word, which, by the way, I, I don't find Rick Warren doing very often nowadays. So, which basically leads us into the next thing, all right? The next thing is uh, frightening. Rick Warren on Saturday um, gave a speech to the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And um, rather than tell you what he said, we're going to listen to a, uh, a, a, a news report that was filed for Southern California Public Radio, uh, KPCC. Uh, I think the PCC stands for politically correct, correct. But um, let's listen to this uh, report from KPCC regarding Rick Warren's address to the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And let me let me warn you ahead of time when you when you hear somebody say "Assalamu alaikum," that's Rick Warren giving a Muslim, uh, you know, greeting that means peace upon you. Um, here we go. Here's Rick Warren, or this, this story. <clears throat> More than a 1,000 Muslims packed the Long Beach Convention Hall for the annual banquet of the Muslim Public Affairs Council. Executive Director Salam al-Mariati says he invited Warren to speak because he's a new kind of evangelical Christian. People like Rick Warren represent a change in the paradigm from one of confrontation to one of accommodation and cooperation. Between- okay, Got to stop. Rick Warren's a new kind of evangelical, and according to Salam al uh, Mariati, apparently Rick Warren is is not into confrontation, but accommodation and cooperation. Okay, folks, where in Scripture are we called to be accommodating and cooperative with people who follow false religion? I don't remember anything like that. Yeah, I, I don't either. In fact, I actually. Uh, the Ten Commandments say you shall have no other gods before me, right? Okay, so um, those who are following Islam are blatantly in uh, in defiance of God's word here because they're following a false god. But, you know, Rick Warren apparently is a new kind of evangelical. Is there, su- is there a such thing as a new kind of evangelical? There seems to always be one. <laughs> well, how how is that possible? Are there new kinds of Christians? No, no. I mean, it's. Not, I'm sorry, folks, but there are Christians and there are non-Christians, and Christians are the same. You know, Christians today are the same as the Christians you know two thousand years ago, and it, there's not a new model. It's not like every year you know we got the new 08, 08 uh, Christians rolling off the assembly line. That does it doesn't work that way. And we don't have the new 09 model coming out, you know, with an airbag or something like that. You, you understand what I'm saying? There's no such thing as a new kind of Christian. There's no such thing as a new evangelical. Folks, This there's something seriously wrong here. But let, let's continue because the story gets more bizarre. I mean, Christians and Muslims. Assalamu alaikum. That was Rick Warren saying that. The 54-year-old Warren began with the traditional Arabic greeting. It means peace be upon you. Let me just get this over real quick. Can we, as Christians, can we say peace be upon you? I mean, if that's a greeting, a Muslim greeting, I wonder if there's some kind of religious implications to that. I can't say to uh, to a, a Muslim that they have peace with God unless they repent of their idolatry, or their false religion, and uh, their sins, and trust in Christ, right, and believe the gospel. Um, in fact. I'm not. We're, we're Christians aren't called to declare peace to the whole world outside of Christ. So any peace that we declare to a Muslim has to be the peace that comes through the gospel. 
But Jesus is mysteriously missing, you know. And uh, I don't think Jesus would be appearing at this Muslim event to offer peace to Muslims apart from himself. I love Muslims. And for the media's purpose, I happen to love gays and straights. In the past... Okay, so that's his big quote. Let me back this up so we can hear this in its full context. Be upon you. Let me just get this over real quickly. I love Muslims. And for the media's purpose, I happen to love gays and straights. In the Who's he talking about? <laughs> just uh, real quick. Who are we talking about here? Oh, Rick Warren. We can love Muslims on account of Christ. But notice that Rick Warren's love here. He's not bringing them Christ. He's not bringing them gospel. It's just love. Right? But what does that mean? Okay, I have to give a, a different definition of love here. There's tough love, and then there's this this ridiculous platitudinal love, right? If you believe the scriptures regarding man's state before God, apart from Christ, if you love your neighbor, then you will do everything in your power to share the gospel with them and let God convert them and give them faith so that their eternal condition is not one of eternal hell, damnation and separation from God. Okay? There are no Muslims, <clears throat> none, who practice Islam who will be in heaven. None. Islam cannot save them. So if we love them, then we have to tell them the truth. If we don't tell them the truth, if we don't bring them Christ, um, then they will go to hell. But Rick Warren didn't bring them Christ. He brought them himself. And, and, and everyone was so excited for him to say that he loves Muslims. There was applause. And for the media's purposes, I happen to love gays and straights. Well, yeah, we Christians, we do love them. We don't hate them. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And for the sake of Christ, we must love them enough to tell them the truth. <sighs> we continue. Past, Warrens also said he thinks homosexuality is unnatural and equated approving gay marriage to condoning incest. He backed proposition. Notice it's Rick Warren who said. Rick Warren has said that uh, that the uh, that homosexual is unnatural and equated to, uh, approving gay marriage to condoning incest. Rick Warren doesn't. Ha I'm sorry. Rick Warren, his opinion doesn't mean a hill of beans. Okay. The, the what this really should say is is that Rick Warren affirms that God's word says that homosexuality is a sin, right? Okay. See, it's about Rick Warren. And see, the thing is, is that we're looking to a man and the purpose of his, oh, there's that word purpose. Uh, the purpose of a pastor is to proclaim Christ and him crucified to, to make disciples. You know, that's really their jobs. And instead he's out uh, glad handling it with Muslims and telling him that he loves them. Isn't that great? Well, we continue. Eight the constitutional amendment banning same-gender marriage that California voters approved last month. President-elect Obama, who opposed Prop 8, has come under fire from gay activists for inviting Warren to deliver a prayer at his inauguration. My attitude is you don't have to see eye-to-eye to, eye to walk hand-in-hand. Hand. Whose attitude? Rick Warren's. Well, that's great, but uh, Rick Warren, are you Jesus Christ? 
Are you some kind of a world religious leader that we did not know about? I mean, are you a, a new prophet that has arisen among us? That you know, Who cares what you think? He says, my attitude is that you don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. Well, I don't care what your attitude is. What's Jesus's attitude? What did Jesus say? You know, what's funny is, is that <clears throat> scripture actually says that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Did you know that? It's true. It's absolutely. Second <laughs> uh, Corinthians chapter six, second uh, Corinthians chapter six. I may have talked about this recently, but um, let me, uh, let me read this for you again. Um, this passage of scripture is rather interesting. Um, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The picture here is, uh, you, know, you know, for instance, like if you were out tilling a field, right, working a field, then um, you don't take a, an ox and a horse and put them under the same yoke. You don't. That'd be two completely different animals, and you just, you just don't do that. Okay, um, that's the that's the picture that's going on here. In in you know when when people back then were reading this is you, know, you do, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Uh, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, compare what you just heard in Scripture. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay? And by the way, that's the Holy Spirit writing. God the Holy Spirit inspired those words to be penned for our behalf. Okay? Listen now. And this is what Barack Obama and I happen to agree on. Warren heads one of the largest evangelical congregations in the nation, Saddleback Church, in Lake Forest in Orange County. He espouses traditional conservative views. He's also urged Christians to do more to fight poverty, AIDS, and global warming. Warren invited Muslims to join him. There are a billion Muslims in the world. There are about two billion Christians in the world. If just the two of us could get together to start working on these problems, that'd be half the world. Sajid Do you hear that? He said to these Muslims, there are a billion Muslims in the world, there are two billion Christians in the world. If just the two of us could get together to start working on these problems, that would be half the world. Are we called as Christians to unite with Muslims to solve the world's problems? Is that the task that Jesus Christ has given the church? Yes or no? Doesn't sound like it. No, not at all. And Scripture says we can't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We can't work with Muslims. I'm sorry, but we can't. And we are not called to solve the world's problems. That's not the job that Jesus left us to do. <clears throat> Let me read this again. Matthew 28 Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's the job Jesus left us to do? Go and make disciples. 
and to teach people all the things that Jesus had commanded them to do, right? Um, if, folks, if we're, if we're supposed to solve the world's problems, then show me in the scripture where that's the priority of the church. Is that even the priority of Islam? Remember, real Muslims consider us to be infidels. And if you've read the Quran, uh, then you know that we're not exactly uh, in, in, you know, with real Muslims. They don't really look too kindly upon us. We continue. Era of Redondo Beach, Radina Adayatali of Irvine and Fahid Ahmad of the San Fernando Valley said the pastor impressed them. It was eye-opening. What was eye-opening? The similarities between what he believes in, what his faith is, and what Islam teaches us. It's the same coin with two different sides. Okay, that was the reaction of one of the Muslims in the crowd. He didn't want to become a Christian. Okay. Instead, he says he was. It was eye-opening, and it was, he said the similarities between what Warren believes and what his faith is and what Islam teaches. It's the same coin with two different sides. If a Muslim could come away from that event after hearing Rick Warren and come to that conclusion, then Rick Warren did not preach what Christianity is. He did not preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins at all. I don't know what he preached. Let's make the world a better place. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. I think that's horrible. I've always heard uh, of Rick Warren, but today I have more respect of the band. Yeah, I must admit I had some preconceived notions. Just in my head, I was like, oh, here's another, like, bigot. So he changed your mind a little bit. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Rick Warren is the author of Purpose Driven Life, a Christian devotional that sold more than 20 million copies. He provided autographed copies for sale at the Muslim convention. You've got to be kidding me. Purpose-driven Muslims? We're going to take our second break. And we'll... <laughs> oh, man, this is serious. Yikes. Oh, man. Uh, folks, what do you think about this? Um, do, you, do you think it's great that uh, now these Muslims think that, uh, that Christianity and Islam are two sides of the same coin? We have so much in common. Email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And we are talking about Rick Warren's appearance at the Muslim Public Affairs Council on Saturday. And uh, one of our Southern California public radio affiliates, KPCC, did a, was there to cover the event. And... Um, Apparently, Rick Warren highlighted all the great common ground that we have with Islam. But the thing is, it's, it's not the common ground that we have in, with Islam that's important. It's the ground that we do not share that's the most important. And what's the ground that we don't share? That Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, the one true God in human flesh, who came and died on the cross for the sins of the world and rose again from the dead three days later. Islam does not believe that. They do not believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. They believe he was a good prophet. They deny that he was crucified on the cross, and they most certainly deny his uh, his resurrection from the dead. And they don't believe that Jesus died for our sins. Yet, after hearing Rick Warren speak, Shadid Vera said, It was eye-opening. The similarities between what Warren believes and what his faith is and what Islam teaches us, it's the same coin with two different sides. Do you think uh, Vera got the real gospel? No. 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 Not at all. This is a travesty. We should not be celebrating this. We should absolutely... Rick Warren needs to be brought up on false doctrine charges. What he's doing is absolutely destroying the gospel. I'm sorry, but we're not called to work hand in hand and hold hands with Muslims and, you know, hug and kiss each other while, as we walk down the primrose path together and making the world a better place. Christ didn't call us to make the world a better place. He called us to make disciples and to preach Christ and him crucified and to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Right? Yes. Okay. Um, back... Back in the day, I've done some computer programming. I don't know if you know this about me. I am a nerd, okay? And what, at one time, I uh, I was hired by a company to do some complex uh, computer programming for a uh, 
some kind of a job matching engine type of thing. They were they were building a matching website for a, you know for a job board that they were putting together. And what happened is is that we started with one set of things that we wanted to accomplish with this website, but every time I would go and deliver you know uh, what I was working on and, and demo it for them, the uh, the scope of the project got bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you're not familiar with the term, the term is called scope creep. And what ended up happening is is that by the end of it, they kept making all of these changes and adding on to the project that they spent all this money and it never ended up going ever net it never ended up going into production because it became too complicated. It like collapsed on itself. Okay, um, if they had just stuck with the original scope of services, stuck to the project and kept it on task on that thing. Uh, then they would have had a pretty nice little thing that they could have upgraded, you know, uh, you know, in iterations over time, and they would have had a, a far better clue as to what was really going on in the, you know, with with their project. But because they got off topic, they got off, they got focused on the wrong things, the whole thing collapsed. I think Rick Warren is a living, breathing version of Christian scope creep. Okay, we're not called to go and work hand in hand with Muslims to make the world a better place. We're not. We're called to make disciples, claim Christ and him crucified. But uh, Rick Warren seems to think that uh, he's doing us all a big favor by doing these things. He's making the world a better place, right? And now he's bringing Muslims in that we can work hand in hand with them as we fight AIDS and poverty together. And uh, forget the fact that Scripture says don't be, be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Who cares? We can all be one. And we'll make the world a better place, right? And let's not be confrontational. Let's be accommodating and cooperative. We're not supposed to be cooperative with the world. We're supposed to bring... Uh, let me read. Let's spend a little bit of time reading here. Let's. By the way, if you... I'm going to change the subject. I have to change the subject. I think I'm going to explode. You know, it's two days before Christmas, and the last thing I need is an aneurysm. But uh, at this point, my question is, what does the scripture tell us regarding how Christ was, you know, remember Jesus was, uh, there was a forerunner to Jesus Christ. Remember who that forerunner was? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Let's see how accommodating he was. Okay. Um, Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. This is Luke Chapter 3, and I'm reading verse 1. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region Eutrea, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his, make path, his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall uh, become straight and rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay? So the word of the Lord comes to John the Baptist, right? And he's in the wilderness. And this is was prophesied by none other than Isaiah the prophet. By the way, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. That's really the right way to look about him. So here we here we read, and this is by the way, John the ba- these John the Baptist passages. These are great passages to be reading during Advent, because what do we do during Advent? Advent is a short season in which we anticipate and look forward to the coming of the Lord. 
And so that's why in many liturgical churches, you know, you'll have passages regarding John the Baptist during Advent. It's just, you know, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord. So we we do the same when we read here. So here's what it says uh, regarding John the Baptist. He said, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him. Now, there's, uh, let me read, okay, let me read that sentence fragment again. I'm just going to give you a little quiz. He said, John the Baptist said, Therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him. Who was he talking to according to that verse? The crowds, right? Okay. There is this really silly notion out there that John the Baptist only spoke harshly to the religious authorities. Okay. It's not true. Or that Jesus only told the religious authorities to repent, but everyone else he handled with kit gloves. That's not true either. The, the Jesus' standard stump speech was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. So... um here we have John the Baptist. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Let me let me put in some Rick Warren speak to see if this works. So John the Baptist said to the crowds to be baptized by him. Oh, we have such common ground. We can walk hand in hand, even though we don't see eye to eye together. Let's work together to make the world a better place and fight poverty and injustice in the in the Roman Empire. This doesn't sound like John the Baptist at all. No. Listen to this. Here's what he said. You brood of vipers. That's what you, <clears throat> it, it, you can roughly translate it as you people whose mothers are snakes. Okay. <laughs> kind of a satanic reference if you think about it. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He, that's what he said to the crowd. Not to the Pharisees. To the crowd. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to make... From these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What do you think of that? I think it's pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. I think he's being, uh, what's, what's the word, what were the words here? Uh, hang on a second. That's right. The, the, the story said accommodating or cooperative. Was, was John the Baptist being cooperating and and uh, accommodating. Not at all. No. Folks, the reality is, and we're going to play a sermon from uh, from uh, Bill Swirler here in a minute, where he talks about this. Um, we Christians are, Christ is coming back. Okay? Christ is coming again. And in a very real way, the church is called to prepare the way for the Lord for his second coming. And I don't think it's done any differently than the way God, than the way John the Baptist did it for his first coming. You know, God himself chose John the Baptist to be his forerunner. And the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist and the message that he was giving was a message he received from God. <sighs> Chris, you're just being narrow-minded. I again. know, I know, I know. It's just, yeah, what about the money changers? Yeah, yeah Jesus wasn't, ex you know, with the money changers, he wasn't, he didn't handle them with kit gloves either, did he? Okay, so here we got so here we got uh, John the Baptist basically telling everyone their mothers are snakes, and saying to them, "Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come?" And the crowds asked John the Baptist, "Well, what then shall we do?" And he answered them, "Whoever has two turnips is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise." Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, "Teacher, what shall we do?" And he said to them, "Collect no more than what you're authorized to do." And soldiers also asked him, "Well, what shall we do?" And he said to them, "Do not exhort, exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages." Right? 
Asked him not to steal from people anymore. Right. Well, he, so he what does he do? He nails them to the wall for their sins, and they're repentant, and they're coming to be uh, baptized for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And then how? Do, and what does it do? This is how you live this out now, right? These are the good works that follow faith. So uh, that the, so there we go. You know, that's an example of of how the Lord had His way prepared by John the Baptist doesn't look anything the way Rick Warren is preparing people whatsoever. There's no repentance. There's no in-your-face. There's no confrontation. It's all accommodating and cooperation so that, according to Rick Warren, there are, there are a billion Muslims in the world and there are about two billion Christians in the world. If just the two of us could get together to start working on these problems, that would be half the world. He didn't point out the sin in their lives like John the Baptist? Right. You know what's really funny about this argument here? I've got to point this out. Okay, so there's two billion Christians on the planet, right? Is the Christian world completely free from disease, evil, uh, poverty, sickness, and injustice? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, which which nation is the Christian nation again? Is it the United? Are we, are we, are we supposed to be the uh, the United States is supposed to be a Christian nation, right? I've heard that. Yeah, that's, I, I, well, apparently that's what some people believe. But uh, last time I looked, we haven't got our act together. There's still poverty. There's homeless people when I get off the freeway. Right? So uh, apparently the, the, the Christians have done a miserable job of fixing this, and all of a sudden the, 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 he just looks at, hey, look, the, if we, we got, you got a billion, we got two billion. Look at if we just get together, we can solve all these problems. Is that... Uh, if, Making purpose-driven Muslims out of them. Ay, 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 ay. No, no preparing the way of the Lord by calling people to repent and believe the gospel. Nothing of that nature whatsoever, folks. This isn't Christianity. And what Rick Warren has done, and you know, I'm sorry, but hooking up with Muslims the way he did, yeah, and the fact that their takeaway was that uh, Islam and Christianity have so much in common that they're two sides of the same coin basically tells you that Rick Warren didn't bring Christ, didn't bring the forgiveness of sins, didn't call for repentance, didn't call for faith. Instead, in some social gospel platitudinal way, presented a feel-good religion where we're all, all you need is love, and love is all you need. But he didn't bring Christ, and he talked about himself. Who cares about you, Rick? You're a pastor, you're supposed to bring us Christ. So, all right. Well, what we're going to do right now is we're actually going to listen to an Advent sermon, a good one, from uh, uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. The pastor is uh, the Reverend Bill Swirla, and the name of the sermon is called Prepare, and it's about John the Baptist, and it's very appropriate for us. Here, you know, two days before Christmas, uh, I'm holding out, you know, uh, you know, and listening to Advent sermons still. So this is a this is a good one uh, that we should really consider, especially in light of what we just heard regarding Rick Warren. In the name of Jesus, Amen. the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You know you're in the season of Advent when John the Baptizer shows up. And I call him John the Baptizer just to distinguish him from radical Protestantism. He's anything but a radical Protestant. (laughs) Or maybe he is. 
there he is in all his wilderness glory, clothed with camel's hair, with a leather sash around his waist, and a strange macrobiotic diet of locusts and wild honey. Eat your heart out, Atkins, which means honey that you grab with your bare hands out of rotting logs while angry bees are buzzing around your head. Imagine John walking into the service this morning all scruffy as he appears on that bulletin cover of yours, munching on a grasshopper, maybe a few bees still stuck in his sticky beard. I imagine he smells a bit, too. What would you think, and would we even let him in the door? No, we wouldn't let him in the door, and can you believe it? This is the guy whom God chose to be the forerunner, the last of the Old Testament prophets and the forerunner of Jesus Christ himself. Doesn't God care about hygiene, you know, being seeker sensitive, loving, caring, handling people with kit gloves? How come he didn't pick somebody with their best life now? Well, you're asking a question I cannot answer. In the door. (laughs) John is one of those characters in the Bible that make you more than just a little nervous. He's intense. Driven, focused. The word is holy. John was holy. Holy as in set apart for a sacred and divine purpose. When you think of John, think of the word prophet. Old Testament prophet. Yeah, I know he's in the New Testament, but it's just, as Mark says, the beginning of the gospel. He's an Old Testament prophet. Part of that line that extends from Elijah to Malachi. John even makes his appearance in the Jordan wilderness at exactly the same place where Elijah left the earth, carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. There's John. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, the forerunner of the Christ. His holy purpose was to prepare the way. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to point something out to you here that I just noticed while I was reading the text in the middle of the aisle. Let's call that the work of the Holy Spirit. huh? Notice that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in two ways, not just one. He baptized, but he also proclaimed a coming baptism. And you cannot have John's baptism without the coming baptism. His was preparatory, but the one that Jesus brings, the one that you received, which also includes the Holy Spirit, that was the fulfillment. And so John's preaching of a baptism is not just his own, but the one that is to come by the way of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So keep that, keep that under your hat. These are not two separate things. They're all part of the same cloth. There was no such thing as baptism in the Old Testament. You can search from Genesis to Malachi. You won't find baptism anywhere. At least not the kind of washing that somebody else did to you. There were plenty of ceremonial washings where you washed yourself, but none where somebody else did it to you. That was something new. In the Old Testament, your sins were forgiven by the shedding of blood. You brought your sacrifice, a goat, a lamb, a bull, And that blood shed in your place was your forgiveness. And that blood sprinkled on you was the sacrament of your forgiveness. 
But now John brings something entirely new to Israel. He brings a baptism, a washing with water for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, people could have rightly said, we don't need that. We're already forgiven. This is a good point. I think this, a lot of people have this attitude. You know, why should I be baptized? I'm already forgiven. You know, why, should I, why should I have the Lord's Supper? I mean, I'm already forgiven. I don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see what he says about this, though. We're already forgiven. I said, rightly. Then people could have said that because that's what some people say. They say, hey, I'm forgiven. What do I need baptism for? Hmm? Hey, Jesus died for the sins of the world. What do I need my kids baptized for? Hey, I've been forgiven. What do I need the Lord's Supper for? That's not the way of faith. No. Baptism was God's idea. God sent John. However, John came to his understanding of baptism. Some think that he learned it in that Essene community in the wilderness where he likely was raised as an orphan after his old parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, died. However, he came about this idea. It came from God. John's baptism was God's baptism, and John was sent by God. It had been almost 500 years since Israel had heard from a prophet sent by God. That was the prophet Malachi, who said that the Lord would send his messenger ahead of him to prepare the way. That's what Malachi means, my messenger. And so there was this hope, this expectation that God would send a messenger to prepare the way for the Christ. And now, 500 years later, here's John, standing in the Jordanian wilderness, dressed like a prophet, smelling like a prophet, sounding like a prophet, living proof that the word of God endures forever. John's message was hard-edged. Law. You wouldn't like it. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn around. Make those rough places smooth, level those mountains, fill up those valleys, get to it, repent. You're going the wrong way, turn around. Come to a new mind, a new way of thinking about God, about yourself, about everything. John was calling Israel out of Israel's comfort zone, away from its religious institutions, the temple in Jerusalem out into the wilderness, that hard-edged, nasty place. And that was the point. This was a reverse exodus back into the Jordan wilderness, a rebirth and a renewal through the water of the Jordan. That's how people were prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Repent and be baptized. That, by the way, is how people are prepared for the second coming of the Messiah. Repent and be baptized. Some things don't change. You say to yourself, I'm not in a repentant mood. I don't feel repentant. I don't have anything to repent of. <laughs> you know what John would say to you? Repent. Repent of your slavery to your puny feelings, which will one day lead you to hell. Repent of your deafness to God's law, which says you're a damned sinner. Repent of your religious security, your comfortable idolatries, your sentimental sanctuaries where you try to hide from God, your faith, hope, and trust in religious institutions. Repent of your anxieties and your adulteries, your disregard for human life, whether it's in the womb or in the nursing home, your trust 
to technology and science and medicine and all those other good gifts as if they could save you from eternal death. Your faith in science over the word of God, your, your casual approach to the holy things of God. Oh, you got plenty to repent of. Repent of the comfortable suburban sanctuaries that you defend at all costs. Come out into the wilderness. Get uncomfortable. That's where God shapes his people. A people who wrestle with God on God's terms, not their own terms. Be baptized. <laughs> wow. Right between the eyes, man. He took the law with a two-by-four. I love how he took John the Baptist's message and then brought it right into... That was relevant, wasn't it? Brought it right into today's lingo. And what did he do? He just slapped us upside the head with the law. And folks, if any of you could have just listened to that and not been convicted of your sins, um, then John the Baptist would say to you, repent. <laughs> he would drive it, drive that point farther down. See, this is what's missing from you know men like Rick Warren. Their message doesn't, it isn't one of repentance. It's one of feel-good sentimentality and feeling like you're making the world a better place. Well, as we walk hand-in-hand hand with Muslims and just as filthy sinners that you are in need of cleansing. <laughs> That's what John would say. It's not surprising that the religious avoided John like a plague out of Egypt. The prophet Isaiah hears a voice calling to him, says, cry out. And he asks, what? What shall I cry? This is what? All flesh is grass. People may not want to hear that. You may not want to hear it, but you need to hear it. Your flesh is like grass, grass of the field, like the flowers that bloom in spring. Do you see the point? The grass withers, the flowers fade, you die, as you are destined to do. Hear it, embrace it, there's no getting around it. The wages of sin is death. Some of us have the privilege of, know, of knowing or at least having an inkling as to what will likely kill us. That is a privilege. Most of us have no idea. It may be a popped blood vessel in the middle of the night. It may be a stray cell running amok even now, unbeknownst to us or the medicine men. It may be a tiny blockage in a key artery that one day just decides to close. It may be an errant bullet intended for someone else by some kid who doesn't know how to shoot straight. It may be a drunk driver who jumps the median strip right into your lane. The grass withers, the flowers fade, you die. And if well, this is getting more depressing. A rotten sinner, and I'm going to die. Now, some of you may be running to your therapist at this point, going, I can't listen to this. But it's true. And this is what we need to hear over and again. Those who have no faith in Christ, that is all there is. It will be hopeless and desperate. Dead grass, faded flowers. But the word of God endures forever. You know, it's really interesting. I, there's a kind of a cult flick that's out there. V for Vendetta. It can't stand the homosexual theme running in it. But there's a, there are a couple of good lines. It's a very interesting movie. 
um, in, in there, the uh, Natalie Portman and uh, and this guy who wears a guy fox mask, you know, are having a little dialogue, and and um, he likes the the uh, old black and white version of the Count of Monte Cristo, and Natalie Portman's character, her name is Evie. She says that she's never seen it before, and asks you know asks if it has a happy ending, and uh, the the. Uh, the main character V, he basically says it has a happy ending only as celluloid can provide, you know. So there's some kind of a romantic notion. We ask all these questions all the time. Of you know, does, does we love that story because it had a happy ending? We love that we love that book because it had a happy ending, and we somehow romanticize and fantasize about these happy endings. But the reality is, is if you think about this, folks, not one of us gets to have a happy ending. None of us. Every single one of us is going to die someday unless the Lord tarries. Unless, well, I, well, it, uh, well, if the Lord tarries, then we're all going to die. If he doesn't, then, you know, then we'll be gathered with him in the clouds. That's the day of victory. That's the big, the big happy ending is being united with Christ when he comes. But, uh, you know, from an earthly perspective, every single one of us has an unhappy ending. We're all sinners and the wages of sin is death, and every one of us has a payday coming. Some of us are closer than others, and some of us are closer than we would think to that unhappy ending. Death, dying, being killed. Right? But Jesus Christ himself is the only one who has conquered death. He's the one who, he, really, he's the only one who's had a happy ending so far. <laughs> he actually came through death. And he promises a happy ending at the end of the age for those who believe and trust in him. Those who know their sinful condition, know their need for a Savior and have repented of their sins and trust in him. He offers a happy ending, free and gratis. But here in the story so far we're getting from uh, Swirla, this this is not happy ending kind of stuff. This is sad ending talk. Well, let's, let's see what he does with it. But the word of God endures forever. The word endures, and the word is your life. The word became flesh, born of Mary. He took up your sin-diseased humanity. The Word endured the cross, scorning its shame for you. The Word conquered the grave, your grave, on your behalf. The Word rose from the dead. The Word endures forever, and in Him you endure forever too. John spoke of the coming one, his cousin, Jesus. They are cousins, you know. Younger in age, yet older greater in stature. John said he wasn't worthy to bend down and loosen Jesus' sandal straps. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. With John's baptism came the whole lot, and with Jesus comes a whole lot more. With the water, the Spirit. That's your baptism. You have been baptized with the greater fulfilled baptism of the greater one. The one who died and rose in your flesh to save you from eternal death. Oh yes, something will kill you, that is for certain. This is also for certain, Christ will raise you. You have been baptized by him into his life and into his death by the water and the spirit. 
Now there's a happy ending, right? And he, so he's pointing to our hope, and that hope is grounded in Christ. Christ promised his right. Commitment. Exactly. We can trust him because he's overcome death. Doesn't matter how much we love or care. It's what Christ does, not us. Exactly. So what do we do? Get up on a high mountain. That's what we do. God says it. He's speaking to the church, to Zion, to the herald of good news. Lift up your voices with strength. I don't care how weak they are. You can't keep this a secret. It must be broadcast, published far and wide. John prepared Israel for the first advent of Jesus. Do you know who prepares the world for his second advent? You, the church. Yep, he's right. And the question is that I have is, is the church really preparing the world for the second advent of Christ? Or are they instead paving the road for the Antichrist? Is John the baptizer of the end times? calling sinners to repentance, urging sinners to baptism, to faith in Christ, to being prepared for his coming in glory. This is the mission side of Advent. Think of yourself as a John the baptizer. Now, you don't have to go out and eat grasshoppers, and you don't have to dig your honey out of rotten logs, you know. You don't have to wear scratchy camel's hair or a leather sash and... But I'll tell you this, if you let your light so shine before others that they see your good works, if you let your baptism show in this world, you will appear as strange to this world as John the Baptist. This world that seems to value strangeness above everything else except one kind of strangeness, holiness. That the world cannot abide, holiness. So let's face it, what can be weirder than a diet of the Lord's Supper? Ah, makes grasshoppers and wild honey look like nothing. The body and blood of Christ. The world will consider you a first-class religious weirdo in the ranks of John. If you want proof of that, listen to one of my favorites, Richard Dawkins. The once famous biologist, now turned atheist apologist, a kind of pathetic figure in his old age, who says that Christians are deluded people who worship sky fairies. Hmm. We'll see how it fares for him on the second coming of our Lord. So don't worry, you're going to have your share of trouble from the left and from the right, from church and from state. The Pharisees rejected John and thought he was demon-possessed. King Herod had John arrested for publicly criticizing Herod's shacking up with his sister-in-law. Yeah, speak of grace alone, through faith alone, for Christ's sake alone, and the world of religion will turn on you and call you a heretic. Ask Luther. Speak against the systemic murder of unborn children or the gross distortion of God's gift of marriage and you'll be charged with taking away people's rights. The message you bring is a message the world needs to hear clearly. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense goes with him. Jesus quotes this verse from Isaiah in his last words to the church in the Revelation. Behold, I come quickly. 
My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And if that last word of Jesus is to be heard as good news and something to look forward to, then it must be heard through faith in what he has done. For only in what he has done can what we have done be rewarded. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Our good works are dung. But in Christ, on account of him, you know, he actually considers them to be a good work. Why? Because they're done through faith and they're washed. Even the, their sinfulness is redeemed in Christ. More simple more direct, more focused, more expectant, more advent than that. Prepare the way of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming sooner than we expect, quicker than you and I can anticipate. And so what sort of people ought we to be, asked St. Peter? A holy people. Holy. Living lives of holiness and godliness living in our baptisms that cover every spot and blemish of sin, living in peace with each other. A peculiar people, peculiar like John, set apart for a holy purpose. A chosen people, graced by God to know his undeserved kindness to sinners for Jesus' sake before the party begins. A royal people who live under Christ the King in his kingdom, and who serve him, a priestly people, teaching, blessing, interceding, offering up living sacrifices of thanksgiving, an alert people, a sober people, an awake people. In short, a John the Baptizer kind of people, wilderness wanderers awaiting a promised land, a new creation and a resurrection to eternal life, an always Advent people, watching, waiting, hoping, prepared, a people with this prayer on our lips, come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Good sermon. Good sermon. Law, gospel, law to condemn, call to repentance, the gospel offered for the forgiveness of sins, even to Christians. I should say even to unbelievers if they happen to have wandered in. Because what is the church? The church is the gathering of the body of, the, of, the body of Christ to hear God's word and receive the Lord's Supper. Right? That's what we do. Ah, thank the Lord for pastors like, like Pastor Bill Swirla and others who, in these days, haven't capitulated to purpose-driven nonsense and instead boldly proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only message that we have any hope whatsoever. Thank you for listening. Until next time, may the Lord bless you.